old, students, those who are working, those who are working at home, men and women, those who are financially stable, those who are struggling financially, those who are single, those who are married, uh, those who are, um, are, who are Christians and those who are not. But may I say this, that every single one of us, we have this one thing in common. Every single one of us have this one thing in common. You may not think you do, and in maybe times in your life it may not be true, but it will be true. And this is what we have in common, that we can, each one of us, say personally that life hurts. That life hurts. You might be a young person, and at some point in time, you fell deeply in love or affection with someone. You've proclaimed your love, your heart to them. You I dreamt of a life together only for it to be crushed. And it may seem like to other people it's kind of silly, but to you it was real, the pain, and you realize life hurts. For some of you, you are browsing through the computer looking for a job, and it's now any job and you're struggling so much financially, and as a, a husband, uh, a father, you feel so insecure because you are not able to provide for your family, and you visit your parents periodically, and you see them in their um, state of life where they need financial assistance, and you wish you can do more for them, but you just don't have the means. And there's an anguish within you, and you realize that life hurts. Perhaps you've had times when you've made some poor decisions, and you realize it's no one else but you. You're the one who made those decisions. And it brought a lot of pain into your life, and not only you, but those around you. And you... Confess that life hurts. If you're a parent and you've been a parent long enough, you know you've had those moments when your child is sick or your child has now made some decisions or some things have happened to your child and they're in anguish and you stay with them and you speak with them and you wish you can fix all of their hurts but you just cannot and you, as a parent, confess that life hurts. I don't know if you've ever been beside a cancer patient at the end of their journey. And there are times when you're sitting with someone ravaged with cancer. They're emaciated hair has fallen out and they look so different from the person they used to be. And you, you visit them to try to encourage them, to pray with them, to simply be with them. And as even they are talking to you, grateful that you're there for them, uh, at moments they stop talking and, and they pause to deal the excruciating pain. 
And though you pray for them and they're grateful that you are there, they know that there's really an inevitability about what's to happen. And you realize, both of you, that life hurts. You know, if you're young or if you've had a, a life in which you've never really have to have confessed that life hurts, I would ask that maybe what you can do is to go visit a nursing home. And as you walk through the, the hallways of a nursing home, you'll have people there, people that you've never met, who will reach out their arms to you in hopes that perhaps you're there to visit them because they haven't had a visitor for over a year. And, and you're there to, to listen to them, to hold them by the hand, to, to maybe take them out for a little bit of a, a stroll. And if you've never really were able to confess that life hurts, you can look into their eyes and those eyes will tell you that life hurts. And it's not just for those who have made poor choices, but it is everyone. Job, whom God declares that he is a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns, from, um, turns away from evil, experiences, if you recall the story, the loss of all of his assets. And he loses not one child, but all of his children in one tragic accident. He suffers catastrophic medical failure where he is chronically and painfully enduring life. He, there are times he, he wonders aloud to his friends, maybe it would have been better if I had not been born ever. And his conclusion about life is this, that life is full of trouble. King Solomon who had everything that a man could want, wealth, women, and wisdom, the wisest person. History had known until that time. He confesses in Ecclesiastes 2.23, it's a little bit of a memoir for him. He says, for all his days are full of sorrow. He's talking about humanity and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest this also is vanity. Life hurts. We're in this particular section in Romans chapter 8. If you have not done so yet, would you turn your Bible to Romans chapter 8? And we're going to be in this particular section, 18 through 27. It begins chapter Eight, verse 18, for I consider that the suffering of this present time, he's talking about suffering. And he's going to contrast that to the comparing glory that is to be revealed, but really the topic is suffering, how life hurts. And interspersed in this particular passage is one word that is used three times, and it is the word groaning or groan. Groan is something like a sigh, a murmur, an inaudible prayer. 
It is a word that is associated with pain, excruciating pain. If you've ever had someone, um, a, a, like a sharp pain, uh, the first reaction when you, it's a sharp pain, it's a, ow, you scream. If it is a pain, a dull pain that lasts, you articulate it, you know, chiropractor, it hurts kind of like right here, my lower back when I'm stressed. But when it is a deep pain that lasts, that lingers, you, you no longer scream, you no longer can articulate, but all that remains in your vocabulary is groaning. It is what uh, mothers do when they're bearing children, when they're um, giving birth to a child, they groan. It is what the terminally ill patient does, uh, they groan. What Paul is going to do in this particular passage is talk about the times when we need to grow, groan. And I want to say this as a preface, uh, embedded in this particular passage, I believe is something immensely, immensely practical as well as uh, truthful. It may not appear practical to you if you've never really experienced this kind of pain, but I would ask that you keep this truth in mind and heart because at some point in time in your life, you will need it. And even if you don't need it, I guarantee you that there are people around you that need it. So I, I, I would implore you to allow the Holy Spirit to speak into you. Uh, the Paul is gonna talk about groaning uh, three ways, three different uh, people or agents who will groan. Creation groans, Christians groan, and the Holy Spirit groans. And I don't, um, and this may be something a little bit confusing, but as we go, it is very, very clear in this particular passage. Let's first turn um, to verse 19 and creation groaning 19 through 22. For the creation awaits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been, here's the word, groaning together in the pains of childbirth now. It says that creation is eager for the future because it has been subjected to futility um, in verse 20. And in verse 21, it says that it was at, um, in the beginning uh, bonded, bondaged to corruption. It says that all of creation was corrupted, rotten, decomposing, decaying. The created order, he says, has been decaying, deteriorating. Uh, physicists have a word for this, it's called entropy. I don't know if you understand um, uh, the world of physics, but the, all of creation has, is going one direction from order to disorder. We cannot undo entropy. 
It says that everything in some way is falling apart. Genesis chapter three, when the world was cursed, it's not only Adam and Eve who were cursed, but creation that was cursed. Uh, It's uh, the garden that was plentiful for Adam and Eve before became thorns and thistles in Genesis chapter three. Although Romans 1.20 says that creation allows us to perceive God's invisible attributes as eternal power and divine nature. Yet, Revelation chapter 22, verse three says, at the end, nothing will be accursed anymore. Meaning, from Genesis three to Revelation 22, all that we see, although uh, it has the handprints of God, it reveals the beauty of God, at the same time, it is broken. It is like looking at the Mona Lisa that has been defaced. It's like looking at Michelangelo's David that someone's taken a hammer to. It's like listening to Handel's Messiah being played with a, with a, a piano that is completely out of tune. The creation that we see is the handiwork of God that has been accursed. So creation groans. You know, I have a little bit of a a confession, um, a guilty pleasure, and I don't know why I feel like it's a guilty pleasure, but a pleasure, but that's a personal side of me. There's a a genre of TV programs that I enjoy watching. Nothing bad, but for some reason I feel a little bit, I don't know, of of confessing this, but I I enjoy watching nature programs. Yeah, I I don't know if any of you men can relate to this, I don't like horror movies at all. Um, I don't like gory things, but I enjoy nature. And, and, and my wife and my girls know that, oh, Appa's watching monkeys again. <laughs> I enjoy watching the rivalry between the lions and the hyenas. I, I, I've learned the differences between leopards and cheetahs. I love to see the, the penguins, the male penguins holding on to their eggs for dear life, right? Um, uh, just the other day, uh, my wife and me and my younger daughter are at the dining room. You gotta watch this video uh, of this um, bird in the Amazon jungle doing this male bird, doing this dance for a potential female mate, and he has three entourages all dancing with him. And I said, you've got to watch this. And, and here's the good part. But as I've been watching these animal uh, planet channels and the such, one of the things that I uh, learned is that there's uh, a constant doom and gloom of how the world is falling apart. I read it in the news also. As... Um, Throughout the years, I've learned that I should be worrying about all of these things. It's overwhelming if you think about all the things that we ought to be worrying about. I've been told that I need to worry about us destroying the forests because we are using too much paper. At the same time, we're destroying the oceans because we're using plastic straws. I've been told that we don't have enough pandas and snow leopards, but we have too many Asian carps and jellyfish. I've been told that we have too much water in the ocean, but not enough water in the lakes and the rivers, right? 
I've been told that the world is getting warmer and the ozone has a hole. I've been told that we are running out of petroleums and heliums. So if you go to Party City and get balloons, you've done two bad things. I've been told that we're running out of bluefin tuna. That is an urgency. We cannot, people, we cannot run out of tuna. You stop eating tuna, okay? So that I can. I've been told that there are asteroids, comets, passing dangerously close to the Earth, some we may not even predict, and that we are constantly being bombarded with cosmic rays. I've been told that, uh, that Californians, as Californians, we are living on an earthquake fault and the people in Oklahoma, whom we consider crazy because they live in Tornado um, Alley, they think we're crazy and we think they're crazy. The more you think about it, and there is a certain vanity among human beings, we believe that we are, in some way, the greatest problem to creation, and we can be uh, potentially the, sol uh, the solver of whatever problems. And there is an audacity to thinking that way because what the scripture is basically saying is all of creation is actually broken. And in some way, now we still need to be good stewards of the garden that God has given to us, but in some way it is broken and breaking down further. And there are things outside of our control. But it says creation eagerly looks forward to a time when things will be restored and the Old Testament prophets talk about a day when the deserts will bloom again and the lion and the lamb will sit peacefully and there will be a new creation and a new earth. But until that time, creation groans. And when we look out into the world, there's a certain groaning that it is the handiwork of God, but the brokenness is not what God had originally intended. We continue, and creation is not the only thing that is suffering and groaning, but in verse 23 through 25, there's another uh, agent that is groaning. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, it says in verse 23, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Not only does creation groan, but we, Paul says, groan. Paul is speaking we, first person, plural, and when he's using that language in all of uh, Romans, he's talking about we Christians, those who have been justified, have been saved from the penalty and the power of sin. We are no longer slaves of sin. We have been, we are children of God who have the blessing to be able to call uh, out to God, Abba, Father. 
And yet, the language here says we have received the first fruit of the Spirit, but not the whole harvest. Uh, 2 Corinthians uses the word a guarantee, a deposit. We have uh, a taste of the Holy Spirit, but not all of him. And in chapter 8, verse um, 15, uh, we were told that we have received the spirit of adoption as sons, but now it says we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. So what is it? We're, have we been adopted or will we be adopted? And in the same chapter, he says it, and the answer is yes, both. We have been adopted and we will be adopted. And he defines what he means by the future adoption. Uh, by, at the end of verse 23, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. And he defines it, comma, the redemption of our bodies, okay? So in the one sense, we've been adopted by God, but our bodies have not been redeemed, restored to its original state or what it's supposed to eventually be in eternity. And because of that, our unredeemed bodies groan. Let me explain how it groans. I believe there are two ways that our bodies groan. Uh, it groans because of its uh, frailty. It groans because of our frailty. In Genesis chapter three, mortality set in, and basically what it's saying is that all of our lifetime, it's merely a journey for us to go back to dust. We're waiting simply for our time for us to become dust. And in the meanwhile, we are prone to sickness, aging, and death, and no one is immune to it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 4, Paul refers to our bodies as tents. We groan being burdened, he says. Like creation, our bodies are undergoing decay. Like it or not, starting at about the age of 20 years old, so if you're under 20, this is good news for you. If you're 20 years and older, well, this is, well, this is news for you too. Starting at about the age of 20, brain neurons start to decrease, and after 40, they decrease at a speed, speed of 100 neurons per day, thus affecting human memory, coordination, and brain functions. So if you're at the age of 40 or older, and I, I, and I see some people looking very alarmed, you may have become more wise, but you don't quite remember how and why you got there. Right, And every faculty of our body is undergoing the same thing that our eyes, our hearts, our bones, our teeth, our joints, our backs, our livers, our kidneys have stopped developing and are now deteriorating, right? You've never, I mean, you rarely hear a 16-year-old saying, my back, my back. 50-year-olds, my back, my knees, my elbows, right? And our bodies groan because of our frailty. 
you know, at some point in time, maybe medical technology can cure uh, one of the most horrific condition, chronic condition that old people sometimes struggle with, that of dementia. If medical technology can solve medical uh, dementia, I would say that it will be replaced by some other chronic illness. That they can cure whatever is the leading cause of death, but that will eventually be replaced by a different leading cause of death because from dust, we all go back. My mother, you know, she took care of my grandmother in her old age, my father in his old age, my uncle in his old age. Uh, not too long ago said to me, uh, my wife and me, that uh, she used to tell, tell people, say to people at, um, in Korean, live long. And my mom told me recently that she no longer says that pe to people because she's kind of understood that living long is not always a blessing. But she now says, live well, which is a different thing. I, I remember my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, uh, who lived with my mom for many years, and I grew up with her when I was in Korea. At, at, and she was a sweet lady, and um, I remember like in Korea, she used to take me to the, to the market, and, and she would buy me tteokbokki, rice cake, and things of that nature. She eventually came to, the, to America, lived with my mom and our family, and uh, toward the uh, later ends of her life, she was bedridden for many years. And when my family would visit uh, once in a while, she would, you know, we would talk, and she'd take me by the hand, and she would say, I want to go to heaven. And, and in, in her way, she's, she's trying to say, life hurts. Life hurts. I know what she meant. And she and I both knew the right answer because she's a believer too. But in this life, all she can do and all I can do is just to groan, to say it's hard. Even as Christians, we groan at our frailty and not only at our frailty, we groan at our fallenness. If you recall from chapter 7, Paul talked about how our flesh, nothing good dwells in me, and that there's a war waging against my mind, and it's the law of sin that dwells in my members or my bodies, our unredeemed bodies, our flesh. And, and this is such bad news and good news at the same time because it kind of explains this, that even as Christians, our bodies are still temptable. That when we were non-Christians, we were uh, attracted to lust. We were attracted to gossip. We were attracted to pride. We were attracted to materialism. And listen, once we become Christians, our bodies, our flesh, are, uh, is attracted to lust, attracted to sin, attracted to gossip, attracted to materialism. In some ways, nothing has changed. And it is so agonizingly painful for those who want to live godly lives. And because we're still temptable, we groan. 
we get frustrated. And you know what? Um, it, for us Christians who've been in the church a long time, and we sometimes bring this upon ourselves because we march out there, people who are beautiful, successful, and who have stories of victory. But the truth is that Christians, as well as non Christians, both, we groan. Life hurts for both of us. Tim Keller puts it this way. This is a scandal for some people, but here's what happens. When disease hits the town, the Christians die with the non-Christians. When the avalanche comes down to the mountain, the Christians are buried with the non-Christians. When a massacre happens in your high school, the Christians are shot with the non-Christians. There is nothing in the Bible that says Christians are going to have an easier life than anybody else. There's nothing. That life is hurtful for us as well. But what this particular short passage tells us is that the advantage of the Christian is that we have hope. Verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. It is a hope that is not seen, meaning that there will be a day when our unredeemed bodies will be redeemed and we'll have a body that will no longer be fallen or frail. And although we will, uh, it does not seem likely, but we uh, are promised a time when our bodies are glorified and we will no longer be attracted to sin. Philippians 3.21 says, God will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. But currently in this state right now, we're living in this uh, awkward in-between times that John Stott says that this whole section is a notable example of what it means to be living in between times, between present difficulty and future destiny, between the already and the not yet, between suffering and glory. And let me get to the third point, and this is where I think this is most relevant and applicable and have helped me. Romans chapter eight, verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with, here's that word again, groanings. Two deeper words. Verse 27, he who searches hearts know what the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. If all we have in this lifetime is hope for the future, that's nice, but what about today? And what Romans chapter eight has been telling us is the subjective ministry of the Holy Spirit, what the Holy Spirit does in our lives in this lifetime. Not only does he allow us to say, uh, cry out, Abba, Father, it says he groans. I want you to notice something here, verse 26, and, and uh, starting from verse 18 and now verse 26, there's an assumption here that the Christian will continue to suffer, that the, uh, the Christian will still be able to, to testify that life hurts, that there is no exception for that. But 
what the Spirit does is he intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Eugene Peterson in the message version says, if we don't know how or what to pray, it doesn't matter. He does our praying in and for us, making prayer out of our wordless sighs, our aching groans. You know, I'm a professional religious person. You know, I don't know if you've ever thought about it that way. I, I do religion for a living. And I guess as a religious person, I'm supposed to know what to say and know what to pray. That when I come alongside of you in your times of hurt, I'm supposed to know and articulate. And that when I have to apply that in my own life, I'm supposed to know. But there have been times in my life and there have been times when I've sat with you where I, I don't know. Or even if I do, I don't know how to continue to articulate it. When it's no longer the sharp pain or the low dull pain, but when it is the deep pain that will not go away, I, I run out of words, I run out of Bible passages to quote. There have been a few times in my life, and as I've sat with some of you, there have been times when I have nothing to say, nothing to pray. It says here, it is during those precise moments that the Spirit intercedes on our behalf with groanings. It's interesting, verse 27, that there are three agents involved here. There's the heart of the Christian. It says that God searches my heart the aching in my heart, God searches how much pain we are in and why we are in pain. It talks about the mind of the spirit, how God knows the mind of the spirit, that they're in sync with one another. And it speaks of the will of the Father and how uh, the, the spirit intercedes according to the will of God, the purpose of God. And do you know why this comforts me so much? Because during those times when I am not sure if I know what to pray for, I don't know what to ask for, and, and I, I don't know what I'm even feeling at times, and if I can come to my Abba Father, I don't know what to say anymore. And it comforts me to know that God can look deep into my heart. And the Spirit and the, and the Father are one in mind, and the Spirit intercedes for me according to God's will. Listen, it comforts me to know the Spirit prays for me when I'm too hurt to pray. The Spirit prays for you when it's too hard for you to pray. I was at an, an event one time, and the speaker had given a, a, like a moving speech about a loss that the speaker had experienced. It was a moving speech. So many in the audience had, had teared up and were weeping. At the end, um, the speaker was doing a little bit of a meet and greet. People were coming. And this one individual came 
and there were no words exchanged. But uh, the person came up, and, and the speaker sent something, and the speaker reached out a hand, and the person coming up reached out a hand, and they held their hands together, and they both just wept. There wasn't a communication of, hey, tell me what's going on. Let me give you words of wisdom, how to process whatever that you are going through. There was just simply an understanding and a groaning together. Listen, there are other passages in Scripture where God says if we pray, God changes our circumstances and God gives us strength. But in this particular passage, Romans 8, 26 and 27, I want you to understand clearly what the ministry of the Holy Spirit is here. In this particular passage, the Spirit does not change our circumstance nor give us strength, but the Spirit simply stays with us in our weaknesses. Does that make sense? And there are those times in our lives that's what we need. That when we groan, we don't groan alone. When, we, when life hurts so much that we're not by ourselves. But the Spirit is with us, intercedes for us. Can we do something right now? Can we take a minute or so and you can search your life past, present, and your future concerns. And, and when we started our, our journey this morning and we started with the idea that life hurts, or for some of you, certain things come to your mind immediately, others, you have to kind of think and, and look deep into that buried pain that you've not wanted to think about. Would you take a minute and take that pain into the lap of your heavenly Father in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Just whisper to the Lord, this is what's hard. And would you then allow the Holy Spirit to pray on your behalf? You're, you, you know, you don't have to articulate clearly, but allow the Holy Spirit to do so. The band will begin some music, but would you articulate that thing that hurts but and then let the holy spirit minister to your heart